Okay, so now we're recording locally. Craig, get in here, buddy. Now we're going to get Craig to chime in. So what I need to do, Craig, comma, join. Well, that's pretty cool. Welcome to Active Discourse, the technology roundtable podcast. I'm Brett, now brought to you on a real Mac. I'm Bo, and I'm brought to you from Windows PC. So, uh, this time around, we... So at the end of the last episode, we just we said that we were going to talk about 2020 in this episode, uh, but you're due for another nostalgic trip because some end of years are not too special, but this one is a little bit different because this is the end of the 2010s decade. I think it's worth to take a look at where Apple and Google were at 10 years ago and at the conclusion of the 2000s decade. So we'll talk about 2020 later. There's more than enough time to be nostalgic about the... 20s which is a weird thing to say we're about to enter the The 20s 20s. yes so i think well i think the the 2010s was such a hugely transformative decade though across technology and culture and a lot of those changes in culture were driven by technology and that's something i think we're gonna notice once we start talking about this like when, when i was reading up on some things to put some stuff together for today's topic I was really fascinated by some of the stuff I was coming across. Isn't it amazing? It's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, like I, I this topic kind of came to mind and became really prevalent in my mind over the course of the last couple of weeks because I just decided, like, oh hey, look at that! It's the end of the decade. Let's go look at what uh, headlines were happening in December two thousand nineteen, or uh, sorry, December two thousand nine. And it was amazing. Like there were a dramatic number of topics, like oh, that concluded brutally or that had no impact whatsoever. Or And, uh, you know, one thing that someone mentioned about how Spotify had just launched in, like, roughly the late half of 2009. It's crazy. So Yeah, with, with how huge music streaming is right now, it's kind of hard to believe yeah. how new something like that is. Right, so we dug through the archives and we're going to bring up a uh, little bit of nostalgia for 2009, and so, uh, but to start things off, let's uh, let's real quick talk about some follow up. So the we have some listener feedback to address. Uh, friend of the show Jeremy mentioned a uh, key feature of the PS5 is the inclusion of a UHD Blu-ray player. Bo, since you are That's the right. Sony guy on the podcast, what are your opinions on this? I think that it's great. Uh, I think that as someone who just bought my first 4K disc very recently, uh, I'm excited to try something like that out. I don't, I don't actually even have a 4K TV yet, but yeah. I'm assuming that I will. Uh, maybe not when the PS5 comes out, but I'm probably going to be upgrading my living room TV and moving that one into the bedroom once the one in the bedroom dies. Yes. So the one in the living room would end up being 4K or, I don't know, maybe 8K if the next one or two years is <laughs> kind. Oh, the 2020s would um, be wild if that actually happens. <laughs> yeah. So What 4K Blu-ray I player think, do you have? Uh, well, the, the PS4 Pro does 4K. No, it doesn't. It It doesn't have does. a 4K Blu-ray player. Let me confirm. I am 
happy to be wrong on this, but I... You're right, it upscales. Yeah, so I, I bought the disc because I was looking ahead at something like the PS5 and, right. and how my TV situation is working out, and I'm thinking I'll want to have some of that high-def mm-hmm. uh, local disc content. So that was the first one that I had bought, nice. and I was pretty satisfied with it. Nice. I'm looking forward to it. Nice. I, I don't think that I am ready for discless consoles. Nope. I don't think we're there. And fortunately, we are not there yet because both the uh, late breaking news of pro- of Xbox Series X will have a disc because it they showed the console and it has a disc player in it, and then obviously the Correct. PlayStation Five has a has support for UHD Blu-ray. So that's exciting. I I don't know. I don't have too many opinions on it because my Xbox One X has a 4K Blu-ray player, but I don't. I have a couple Blu-rays. 4k blu-rays but i haven't used them yet so the current state of hd is surprisingly sufficient yes for living room watching especially so the last point of follow-up for us today is the operating system updates and uh actually within a couple days of us launching our last episode there was news about uh, the android 10 beta for the galaxy s9 so what do you know about that yeah uh, so it hasn't hit the U.S. yet, but the Android 10 beta is available for the Galaxy S9 and S9 Plus mm. in certain countries like the U.K. and things like that, um, India, I believe. Um, so it's becoming available, and it's expected to be available in the U.S. Uh, early 2020. So I think what I had said when I predicted it was January or February, and it looks to be right around that. So okay. I was accurate. There you go. There you go. Are you actually going to partake in the beta, or are you just going to use the... I think I will. You will? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to load up the Android 10 beta, uh, which is going to have one UI version 2 for the Galaxy S9 series. You're you're a brave man. I'm pretty sure I'm going to load that up when it becomes available to me. Okay, cool. On my side, I have updated to iOS 13 on my iPhone, and that is, I believe, now the last device in my home to update to the iOS 13 series. My watch is still running uh, watch os 5 but you know i take one thing at a time so i haven't updated that just yet but uh i've updated and i think the best piece about this whole situation um is the fact that my i i've been tracking my battery stats over the course of the last since about june or so and every single night at the exact same day i've written down the percentage as well as the usage stats for the day and now that i've been updated to ios 13 for a couple weeks i've taken a look at the stats and there is no noticeable change in uh, battery life between ios 12.4 and ios 13.2 and 0.3 so i've taken no change in battery life extraordinarily excited about that so uh, and overall, the operating system has been fine. Glad that it's turning around. Yes. So it'll be, I think we'll probably quiet down. At, well, you're not going to quiet down because you're going to give out the uh, give a shot on the beta, and I'm going to be curious about that. But I'm pretty much going to shut up about iOS 13 for a while now because it's, it should be... Because uh, it's serviceable. Right. It should be a non-news thing until they announce iOS 14. So everything, anything between now and June should be 
pretty much table stakes. So we'll talk about the 2020s at some point in the future. But for now, we're going to talk about the 2010s. A glorious decade. A glorious decade. What a wild decade it was. <laughs> we were we were young chickens at the beginning of the decade, but we're still young chickens now. So, so, yeah, so just so we were in the same some of the same courses in at university. Yes. So just to put this into a little bit of perspective for us and also for listeners. Yes. Reviewing this decade takes us like if we go back to the beginning of the decade. We were both just heading into university. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we, we each picked uh, roughly three topics, yeah? Yes, three topics. Right. Yep. Okay, so do you want to do a little bit of back and forth as we've done in the past? Yeah, just like just like we've done in the past. Uh, we have three different topics, as you just said. Um, it, we scoured through the archives of our favorite websites for our uh, platforms, and basically looked for trends to see what's <laughs> you know what was going on in 2009 and yeah. uh anything that's crazy and different and weird and anything we want to talk about so All right. um do you want to kick it off i can yeah okay uh so live and on-demand content is the one that really uh that i thought about first so if we go back to 2009 Twitter was just starting to take off. And uh, with that really came the era of like actually real-time news. So even search engines like Google uh, and Bing and stuff started to account for that and were enabling results for content that was literally being created at that moment. So we're still trying to handle all the side effects from that. Of, yeah. of real-time news so uh things like and it's benefits and and kind of more negative things so active mm-hmm. disasters tragedies uh politics like it was it was a huge change in everything and, you know and, uh you know twitter was set up basically to be a status update from your phone essentially like the 144 character limit was the limit of a text message essentially and yeah, SMS. Yep. That was the whole point of it that you could live update just by sending a text message out to the world essentially. It was yeah. yeah. And it was a a big shift in the way that we you know people communicated and and updated things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so social media changed started changing right around then. Uh but then if we go to 2011 there was a streaming site at the time which was called Justin TV. Okay. It was a roughly two-year-old platform, general purpose, user-driven streaming site. And in 2011, it spun off a gaming-focused broadcast service called Twitch. Oh, hey, look at that. That would later be acquired by Amazon in 2014. Wow. <laughs> and spawned competitors like Microsoft Mixer and Google's YouTube Gaming. Wow. And Twitch, again, was gaming-focused, but is now kind of heading back into a more general-purpose streaming site, kind of like its predecessor, Justin TV, was. So there's programming streams, creative streams, like music and painting and and everything. So uh, it's kind of yeah. interesting, the, the, the course that that took. But, I mean, for as huge of a phenomenon as twitch has kind of become like esports and and all kinds of uh live streams is 
it, it kind of happened quickly. Yeah, totally. In 2009, if somewhere to say in 10 years, it's relatively a viable possibility that you could make money by playing games on the internet, you'd have been laughed out of the, out of the room. Like, yeah. And that's, it's real <laughs> people. I mean, cause even at that time, yeah. even at that time, 2010 or so, uh, there were YouTubers that were making a living, but it was very rare. Yeah. And it was definitely, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't live. Yeah. It was, you were putting out consistent videos all the time. But you were a channel that people would go to and find your videos. How weird is that? Yeah, no kidding. kidding. Um, On that same uh, note, Netflix. They were... uh, uh, Here's an interesting fact I learned. They were founded in 97. So they're older than they seem. Mm -hmm. And they've now become the largest peak source of internet traffic. And Mm -hmm. they started streaming... Uh, between 07 and 2010, I think it was like 2007 was like the earliest online streaming era for them. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, they were DVD by mail, which uh, for us being college students at the time was, pr- I think we both probably used that. I was... At least I used it pretty just, heavily. Yeah, I, um, something got in my head in 2000, I think 11, that... Uh, the streaming thing was the only thing that I wanted to do. And so it, as, uh, I think a sophomore, basically I would, I'd find myself in the comments constantly with my laptop and just streaming. But I was always curious about ordering a DVD, but it just never happened. I I never happened to say, (laughs) Hey, I want to get that. But I know I knew it was a thing and slowly, but surely it just started to become less and less of a thing. Yeah. Uh, I had used it, uh, before I'd gotten to college. So once I got there, I, I just kept using the DVD by mail and then streaming became a big deal. Um, and two shows, one of them at least, and another one that you're kind of, I think we're starting to watch more, Mm -hmm. but breaking bad was a series that benefited pretty strongly from those early streaming days. And so was mad men, Mm -hmm. um, because they were, they started in like 07, 08 roughly mm-hmm. and went for several seasons and they were streamed heavily on Netflix. And so those, uh, the, the creators of those series specifically have said that Netflix was a huge factor in how popular those shows were. Yeah. And so it's kind of fascinating to that. They kind of sat in that sweet spot of hitting the early days of streaming where they could benefit. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then of course, within a couple of years, Netflix was starting to do its own original stuff, starting with house of cards being the first fully original, uh, content that Netflix produced in house. Mm-hmm. You know, I think breaking bad really, really benefited from being added to Netflix just so shortly before their, uh, series finale because I remember discovering Breaking Bad in 2013. I have no idea when Breaking Bad was added to Netflix, but I know I discovered it in 2013, and that was also the year in which they concluded. And I binged through it. All my roommates in my apartment were binging through it as well because we all just discovered it at the exact same time, and then we discovered it like maybe three or four months or so before the series finale, 
And I remember that series finale, the several weeks in a row where we got a cable subscription to watch Breaking Bad and it just being something entirely different. It felt like a cultural phenomenon to watch the series finale of Breaking Bad. And I think that honestly, a lot of that came from the fact that the whole, well, our, our society in general discovered Breaking Bad because of the streaming sensation that is Netflix. Yeah. And it kicked off. And and it it all basically happened starting in like 2010. Yeah. And so now here we are at the end of that decade where streaming is like bigger than cable, bigger than DVD by mail. Mm -hmm. It's massive. And so now we've got all these different uh, content creators and distributors starting up their own streaming services with like Disney Plus, Apple yeah. TV, uh, NBC starting up its own streaming service. So it's it was a huge shift, and it was really fascinating reading about Netflix's history. And I recommend everyone just check out their Wikipedia because mm-hmm. I was reading through the early history from their founding. First of all, their original logo is so ninety seven. Oh, God, it's I want to see that. I want to see that. Yeah. Hold on. So then. Um, Basically, overnight, once they started doing streaming, they went from being the United States Postal Service's biggest customer to being the largest source of internet traffic, like within a fascinatingly short period of time. Yeah, it was such a fast and hard shift, and it's it's kind of you know it it didn't seem like much at the time that 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 movement, but it's looking back it, it's like it happened so fast yeah it, netflix is absolutely one of my favorite companies in existence notwithstanding this horrible 90s logo but there is, isn't it like pure 97 though Ooh, maybe yeah that's it's, <laughs> ooh, something i'm glad they switched to red at least <laughs> it was pretty early that they switched to the uh the Netflix logo that we know and yeah. love. I think it was like 2003 or something like that. Yep. 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 Cool. So yeah, just to tie that whole thing up, live content on demand video, um, just streaming broadcasting during the 2010s that, that, that domain saw a tremendous uphill climb. Like it's, it's everywhere now and it pretty much drives, all the content that we consume on a daily basis, I think. I'm going to go out of order from our OneNote, but my <gasps> biggest pick for nostalgia for the for 2009, really, is cloud computing was in its infancy in 2009. A couple names that everyone knows about for cloud storage providers. Dropbox, Google Drive, iCloud, Microsoft OneDrive, all of which either didn't exist in 2009 or were not even really a shell of who they are today. So Dropbox was formed as a company in 2007 and was still very much a startup in 2009. From what I've seen, it looks like they hardly even had a beta launched in 2009 at all. Uh, Google Drive had not launched yet. iCloud was still called MobileMe and would get reinvented when it was called iCloud in 2011 and still would go through several rounds of Uh, updates and trying to get developers on board with it and microsoft onedrive 
went through even more iterations. I, I think it started off as SkyDrive. It, it, it even started off as SkyDrive. In 2007, I believe it was called Windows Live Folders for Windows Vista. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Windows yeah, Live. Man. Windows Live, yeah. <laughs> uh, using the Xbox Live naming uh, nomenclature. So they, uh, you know, OneDrive went through a lot of different phases and whatnot. It was kind of available in 2007 to 2010, but it was. Microsoft was a very different company as it looks like you're about to talk about and um, (laughs) Microsoft was a very different company at the time so people that interact with cloud storage through their phones today really primarily and at this time in 2009 modern smartphones hardly even existed you know the iPhone had just come out Um, Blackberry was still very much leading and the headlines that I saw from 2009 is that uh iPhone was a competitor to the BlackBerry, not BlackBerry was a competitor to the iPhone. And theoretically, all of these services could have existed, but none of the integrations that we have today are were anywhere close to full-featured and really, I, I think, came into their own by about 2015. Um, and this, to me, really is one of the biggest changes throughout the decade. In 2009, the world thought, of the Windows desktop as the number one definition of what a computer is. And I think today most people would call their primary computer their smartphone. And part of that, I think, really truly comes down to the fact that cloud storage is integral to iOS, to Android. You Like when I was setting up this... Most people don't even yeah. notice. It's just exactly. that seamless. It's just kind of background yeah their files just go places you know right and it's not even just like cloud storage with interacting with your files which is a such a 90s way to think about it but um your apps the apps that you have on your phone and on your tablet and on your mac or your windows pc and you know all all the different platforms that you use they all kind of just talk to each other in the background uh the one note that i was setting up for this story here I edited it on my Mac. I could bring it with me anywhere with my phone, and I can be reading it right now while talking into a microphone on my iPad. And at no point do I need to say, OneDrive, you should sync this with my phone. OneDrive, you should sync this with my iPad. It just does it. And it's Mm -hmm. not logging into some other website. It's not loading something onto a USB drive. It just does it. And... It, it it seems really similar to the streaming services, uh, music streaming services specifically, where the playlists that you have built on your phone come with you wherever you go. And it, it's amazing how much cloud computing has uh, evolved over the course of the decade. Yeah, like you were getting into there a little bit. Um, it's not just files, like your settings, your preferences, mm-hmm. they they follow you around uh, across devices. Yeah. And it's stuff that people don't even notice. Yeah. And I, I I do want to take a minute to point out that whenever, whenever you see the word cloud, replace it in your head with someone else's computer. I I just don't want people to forget what the cloud actually is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It powers a lot of great things, but I don't lose sight of the fact that your stuff is still stored somewhere. It's in a server. It's not magic. Like, it's a server. Yep. Because I hear people say, well, it's not a server, it's the cloud. (laughs) 
it's literally someone else's computer. It's stored somewhere. It's on yeah. a server somewhere. Technically, I, just, I don't want people yeah. to forget about that. Technically, it's several servers strewn across the country and across right. the globe. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a different computer that stores all this stuff and everything just talks to it. Yeah, it's it it was all it it was all technically available in two thousand nine. But uh, you know, obviously, computing power has changed since then. But you know, it it also took a lot of developers' effort as well to make it happen. Like mm-hmm. it, it didn't just happen overnight. This was this has been a slow gradient over the course of the decade. Honestly, like every single year brought something new, and then eventually, I mean, honestly, like in in my own world, when whenever Microsoft really kick, flipped the switch on converting, you know, their whole company over to a cloud first inf- infrastructure, that was a huge change. And you know that uh, most people probably see that from the fact that you know they use a Windows computer and all of Microsoft services are right there in front of you and um, available to you wherever you want to go. And Microsoft knows that they're not the Windows company anymore. They're the cloud mm-hmm. company now. So Yeah, which is uh, a great transition into my topic. Unintentional, but it worked. <laughs> yes. So Microsoft in 2009, huh? What do you want to talk about? Well, so first of all, like you said, Microsoft today is very service oriented. So mm-hmm. uh really it was uh Microsoft Azure kind of mm-hmm. kicked off the whole thing which for those who are unaware is kind of like uh Amazon web services or AWS. It's it's cloud computing. It's um hosting and and um uh backends for websites and yeah. The backbone of the internet, essentially, a lot of stuff has run on Azure in the back end. Yeah, more people um, are reliant on Azure than they know. I think. Exactly. So today, that's that's kind of describes Microsoft. It's mm-hmm. service oriented. Uh, um, they they know that you're not just going to use Windows. They know that you might have Android phones or Apple computers, and they still want you to be able to use their services. And this is very different from the Microsoft of the aughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 2010 and prior, they were they were still trying to push their own hardware and their own software on their own hardware. And uh, this is you can you can see this with things like the Zune, mm-hmm. uh, which was their iPod slash Spotify competitor. So they had a hardware Zune, which is an MP3 player to compete with the iPod. And they also had Zune software that was kind of an early music streaming iTunes type of thing. And I will still say that the Zune software is some of my favorite software that mm-hmm. um, played music. In yeah, and time. I actually really like the aesthetic of the Zunes too, agreed. the hardware and the software. Totally agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, they, they officially kind of gave up on the Zune around 2011 or 2012, uh, they they saw the writing on the wall, and it just wasn't going to beat the iPod or iTunes. Uh, yeah. Plus, um, that was kind of around the time uh, streaming was starting to take hold with Spotify, and that started to become popular. I think it was also clear that uh, around that same time frame that uh, competing against the iPad was a dying market, essentially, because... It, right, either, with streaming. Yeah, a, a company as big as Microsoft should obviously know that you know apple's paying less and less attention every year to their iphone uh, their ipod and putting all that attention back into the iphone obviously they need to skate to that puck instead of the dying ipod market essentially 
Yeah. Yeah. So Windows Mobile, huh? Yeah. Well, they attempted to follow up uh, Zune and also Windows Mobile, which uh, I I don't even know what to say about Windows Mobile. It was really like, you know, uh, what did they call them at the time? Pocket PCs? Did you ever have whatever. one? No. No. Okay. Uh, uh, well, they, they attempted to follow up Zune and Windows Mobile with a successor called Windows Phone. Sorry, when and I say did you ever have one, did you ever have a Windows Phone, quote-unquote? I did not. Okay, all right, all right. Um, so it, that, was in, that was in about 2010. Okay. Um, I, I, I kind of wish I did have a Windows Phone, but, you know, because it's unfortunate. They never really gained a foothold against iOS or Android, which were really starting to take off in the early 2010s. Yeah. We can uh, still get you one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that we'll that was a because it was declared no. <laughs> end of life as of December tenth. Right. So at the time of recording, that was five days ago. So oh. it's literally dead. Look at that. Right now, um, <laughs> and it's yeah, it's really unfortunate. They just never had the developer mindshare, so there weren't uh, the apps that you would get um, with the Apple ecosystem and the Android ecosystem. So it just fell behind rapidly, and they could never catch up. Uh, it didn't help that Google uh, pr- put the the foot on their throat pretty early by not allowing YouTube and Google Maps and things like that um, yeah. on Windows Phone, yeah. uh, and that was pretty much death knell, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's unfortunate, but here we are in 2019, just to contrast that, and Microsoft has their own surface line which started to launch in like 2013 2014 uh, but now 2019 they've announced and revealed a surface duo which is a dual screen device running android yep and that's going to be releasing i think in 2020 so there's another sign of the shift where they're not super concerned with you running their software or their hardware as long as you've got something yeah. It's it's got Microsoft in there somewhere. So they, in this case, they don't make the software. They they are contributing to Android, but um, it's not their creation. But it is their hardware. And mm-hmm. uh, another thing is cloud gaming today uh, on Xbox consoles and PCs. You can uh, play games that you haven't downloaded. You're essentially streaming them. Um, a lot of their software today is cross-platform, supports Mac, Linux, iOS, Android, uh, stuff like Office, which you can use on almost anything these days. Uh, so lots of shifts in terms of that. And I, I really want to give a, as, as someone who, uh, uses, uh, I do programming for my job and my hobbies. So I really want to give a shout out to Microsoft for their recent moves toward open source software and transparent development. Okay. So, uh, the .NET programming platform, which most people know of is like, you know, I have four different versions of the .NET framework on my computer and well, I need to install a new one, that kind of thing. Um, they, within the last four or five years, they open sourced that whole .NET platform. So what used to be you could only use 
.NET to program for Windows platforms, you can now use it for Mac, Linux, mobile, web, and it's it's all open source. Uh, a lot of their new applications, like the the new Edge browser, is based on Google's open source Chromium project, and that's all really a part of its its new uh, moves toward openness. And some of that was in motion beforehand, but I think uh, Satya Satya Nadella gets a lot of credit for for the Microsoft of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the current CEO. And he followed Steve Ballmer, and I think that change has led Microsoft to be way more open and inviting. So yeah. I'm, I'm actually very interested in some of their products and services again. Uh, so it's yeah. been a really positive decade for Microsoft, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I a lot to unpack, and I, honest to God, like Microsoft. I think does better when they are not the top dog in the market. They mm-hmm. at the beginning of the decade in 2009, you know, they they still had Windows and I think rightfully so Satya Nadella gets all the right credit that he deserves because the previous regime really um from Steve Ballmer was if you're not with us, you're against us and we'll crush you at however we see we need to. And that was what they're known for uh, even now, really, but much less so now. And mm-hmm. throughout the 2000s or the 2010s, sorry, they lost a lot of that power. You know, the, as, as I mentioned in my last part where I said that most folks probably consider their iPhone or their Android phone to be their primary computer these days instead of their desktop if they even have one or a laptop which they which people likely do um, most people probably consider their personal computer their smartphone these days because that's where they do most most of the stuff they used to do in the 2000s they do that all on their phone you know reddit was you know a, a creation from the 2000s I believe mostly anyway uh, but I could see that being something that people mostly used on their desktop computers in the 2000s. And in the 2010s, Reddit's consumed on your phone. And I, I could name a number of things, uh, mm-hmm. just not, not off, pretty much off the top of my head, for things that we do now on our phones these days than they, we did in the uh, than our, on our desktops today. But... Either way, so Microsoft lost a lot of their power over the course of the uh, over the course of the decade. You know, my, uh, the Xbox, the 360 was a huge powerhouse throughout the 2010s, but they even lost that powerhouse. The Xbox One, even though it's a great product, has not been nearly as successful as the 360. I I think that's the that's my opinion, but I think that's the correct. Competitors of the day, the PlayStation Four. Yeah, yeah, the PlayStation Four is regained the ps2 dominance honestly and what that has resulted from microsoft is them being stupid aggressive in delivering a good product to the consumer that is loyal to xbox so over the course of the 2010s we saw something that 
you know might not be considered possible which is having xbox 360 emulation and xbox original emulation on the xbox one even though it uses a completely different uh processor architecture the xbox i don't know what the xbox the original xbox was built on but i know that the xbox 360 was built on uh, a power pc architecture and the xbox one is built on an x86 architecture and just in layman's terms that means that they're not compatible and Mm. microsoft more or less brute force saying we're an underdog in this category the xbox one is not being extremely successful what would be successful well people are nostalgic for their old games that they played on the xbox 360 maybe they don't want to buy another xbox 360 maybe microsoft doesn't want to sell the xbox 360 anymore so let's just brute force in compatibility for xbox 360 games and that was a hugely uh consumer friendly move and they are a better company for it and i don't think that would have happened in 2009 honestly they they i think microsoft in 2009 would more or less just say we have a new console too bad the old games don't work buy a new console ask the developers to make a new game for it actually that was as recent as the the xbox one launch which was partially the reason why the Xbox One did not do very well coming out of the gate. Because uh, I don't remember, was it Phil Spencer who said, uh, someone asked him, like, what do you say to people who, I don't remember the question, it was something about the the Xbox One and how it handled a certain situation, and he said, well, buy an Xbox 360. Right, that was the answer. (laughs) (laughs) That was like 2013, yeah. You know, so... it really was like the mid two thousands or mid 2010s where they started to finally realize that uh, the one needs more openness and, and uh, they really had to start pushing things like Xbox game pass and, Mm -hmm. and the new cloud uh, streaming and backwards compatibility and just get people back on board again and back on the friendly side of the brand. Right. So, um, uh yeah i I think it it, i i hope it persists even if microsoft uh overtakes sony in the next console generation and in all of the other industries that they compete in as well i I, you know it seems like companies forget very quickly uh the lessons that they get taught harshly by consumers sometimes so (laughs) right right so yeah the and the Xbox is just one example, honestly. I think um, the uh, uh, Office 365, uh, the you, the availability across all platforms that Office 365 is on is just incredible because Microsoft wants to sell more Office 365 subscriptions, just like they want to sell more Xbox Live subscriptions, Game Pass subscriptions. That's, you know, they, they've, as we talked about it, about Apple in the previous episode, they've migrated to a service model and they're not dependent on selling X number of widgets per month. They're trying to sell as many subscriptions per month and average revenue per customer. And I think that that has done a great, great thing for Microsoft. And then this is just the consumer side. There's the whole, the whole business side that they run with Azure, which is a whole different beast, which we haven't even... I mean, we've talked yeah. about it. You've talked about it with the .NET open sourcing. But, um, you know, I, I I do want to make a shout-out here to a show that I've listened to constantly for 
uh, several years, which is the Windows Weekly Podcast. Um, the Windows Weekly Podcast is a show on the Twit, Twit Network with Paul Thrott, Mary Jo Foley. They're both uh, long-time Microsoft uh, authors. Paul has written several, several books about how to properly use Windows and how to be more efficient with using it. He's an amazing, amazingly bright guy. And this is a long-haul request here, but if you listen to their show every week for the past several years, you can hear them kind of evolving with Microsoft and seeing how Microsoft is changing. And they are very, very clearly much more optimistic about Microsoft today than I think they were several years ago when Microsoft was just pushing Windows and saying, we are the Windows company. They're not the Windows company anymore. And over the course of the last several years, you'd see them evolving their narrative about Microsoft in that exact same fashion. So it's a great show. Um, and love listening to them. Do you have anything to talk yeah. else to talk about Microsoft? Man, just <laughs> no. <Okay. laughs> I mean, I just, I, I could gush about them a little bit, but uh, I, I just think they're doing really well right now with with a lot of their products and services, and um, you know stuff like the the Surface uh, earbuds that they're going to launch. I think next year, um, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I don't know. It's Stuff that, you know, I haven't really bought anything from them yet, but it's the fact that they've got me looking at so many different things for my next purchase when I need it. Yeah, I think we're going to need to... I I look forward to the Galaxy S11 being launched and us discussing whether or not you get that or if you wait for the Surface Duo. Yeah, and I, I don't even know if it's as much of a... Uh, brand or a software thing as much as the duo being manageable as a physical device because it is pretty wide even when it's folded closed so it's a good question that'll something we'll look at yeah it'll be i'm i'm gonna be very curious to see your opinions on that okay uh my second one is i think gonna be pretty quick because more or less i believe it really explains itself honestly the rival but the rivalry between Google and Apple kicked into high gear, well, started to kick into gear in 2009. Eric Schmidt, uh, one of the top ex- investors and founders, essentially, of Google, uh, resigned from the Apple board of directors in 2009. So Eric Schmidt was aware of the iPhone's development throughout its whole development cycle. He was on the board of directors for Apple, which is just crazy to think about today. And in 2009, he resigned because at the time when I was reading through these articles, they said, you know, Android's getting to be a pretty big deal. And uh, Google being on Apple's board of directors is seemingly more and more a uh, conflict of interest. So uh, (laughs) Eric Schmidt resigned. So Mm -hmm. that's... Uh, but really, the rivalry over the course of the 2010s was fueled by the Galaxy S launch, which in 2009, December 2009, had not even launched yet. Uh, it launched in January 2010. So <laughs> the whole uh, patent lawsuit that would follow only just concluded in mid-2018. So that is a long time. Um, yeah, pretty much lasted the whole decade. <laughs> pretty much, I mean, honestly, it can categorize the decade uh, that yeah. the Apple, Apple and Samsung 
were in constant litigation amongst each other across. I, I, I looked at that uh, Wikipedia article for the litigation between Samsung and Apple, and it spanned across several different countries. There was new revelations constantly. There was, uh, you know, Apple sued Samsung, Samsung sued Apple. It was just a, it was a spider web of lawsuits <laughs> and, you know, I don't even think any one of those companies actually won. And further, it's not like Apple stopped doing business with Samsung. Almost a, a very, very large portion of the chips inside an iPhone, even today, are Samsung sourced. Like the OLED, uh, I believe, is still primarily produced by Samsung. But either way, like mm-hmm. the, the 2010s is really categorized by this rapid growth in smartphones fueled fueled by this fierce rivalry between the companies uh involved in their each of their desires to have the launch for the next big thing the famous line that samsung started to market around over the course of the decade so yeah hadn't and, even started in 2009 the rise and fall of various uh mobile manufacturers yeah yeah, in two thousand. So the the first Android phone was the HTC Dream. Yes, uh, it was also called the T-Mobile G1, and yep. it was kind of a slider thing with a physical keyboard. I remember it. And uh, um, so HTC started off the two thousand tens pretty strongly. They were like one of the biggest Android manufacturers. And now they hardly, you know, they're hardly around anymore. Yeah, uh, Google yeah. ended up ended up buying, I think, most of their mobile team. Yeah. Yeah, uh, BlackBerry still technically exists as a company, but yeah. they don't manufacture anymore. They've sold yeah, again. Off. They're mostly in services. So yeah, so BlackBerry still technically exists. You can buy a BlackBerry phone today, but it's not made by BlackBerry. It's made by a Chinese company. Um, you can buy a Palm today, but it's not really anywhere close. It runs Android, um, and it's also in the same boat as BlackBerry, made by a Chinese company. And yeah, Nokia. Nokia, right? Yeah, Nokia ended was up getting bought by Microsoft. Bought by Microsoft, and then the name was sold off, and now it's made by a Chinese company. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, no, and Nokia devices, I think, are still like today, right now, they're regarded fairly well, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not a top contender, really. But yeah, and and all of this again, just to tie it back with your original kind of topic, is driven by the Apple versus Google. Mm-hmm. Android iOS thing because all these manufacturers were getting on board with Android because of its huge growth. So uh for the the turn of events throughout the 2010s for so many of them that came on board to later be acquired or just fall off the map or you know what what have you is is a, a hell of a journey. Right. <laughs> And, and I guess lastly, really, is the fact that at the beginning of the decade, a phone with a large screen in 2010 had a 3.5-inch diagonal screen. Today, a phone with a eh, maybe normal-sized screen is roughly 5.5 to 5.8 inches. That's normal. That's the iPhone 10 size screen. People with a large phone these days, they have a phone that is... 6.7 I think we might be getting close to 7 inches in diagonal which is literally double 
uh, yeah. what it was in 2010. And although that's wild. if you take the bezels into it, like without bezels into account, you'd say, well, that's a tablet, right? But phones have gotten such narrow bezels these days that you can, you can hang on to it a little easier. Yeah. Uh, on the same, in the same vein, uh, you should look up a, a review sometime for, um, a Dell phone. I think it was called the oh, streak. It's right. A, yeah, I do remember the Dell streak in hindsight. It was way ahead of its time because it was a large screen phone and it was basically heavily criticized for being so huge. <laughs> but now we've got phones that are twice as big and no one will buy anything else. So I think they just, they, they hit, that part of the market too soon or something i mean read a review of it and it's like it's yeah. kind of interesting it played angry birds that's what it did yeah <laughs> and it did it well it did it well wild i'm gonna I'm, i i have it pulled up i'm gonna read it so all right what's your last thing for uh nostalgia for 2009 all right this is uh this is one that's still developing I, well i guess all of these kind of are but okay. uh VR, AR, mobile gaming. We're in a we're in a renaissance right now. <laughs> mhm. Mm-hmm. Uh 10 years ago if you thought that VR would be a big deal, you might think of the stuff that was out in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. Virtual Boy or the the couple VR headsets that were out in the 90s that were commercial failures. Because they just didn't have the technology. You you couldn't have the high resolution uh, that you needed to actually make VR <laughs> worth anything. Uh, but in 2012, the Oculus Rift was launched as a Kickstarter campaign. And it was released in 2016 after being acquired by Facebook. Okay. So it really was... Um, Facebook acquiring it was kind of a big deal because uh, the resources required to put out a headset like this is actually fairly astronomical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need really high resolution screens, high frame rates, uh, and that's not easy to do. It turns out, <laughs> yeah, or cheap. Uh, so since then there's been several follow-up devices from oculus there's uh, one called the go one called the quest and they're uh they're they're kind of on a spectrum of portability versus being tethered to a pc like the rift um and aside from oculus there's tons of competitors playstation's got a vr samsung has gear vr valve with steam vr htc's vive microsoft has mixed reality which is kind of on the augmented reality um but this this stuff is really just starting we're i mean for people who think it's impressive now i mean i can't imagine what it's going to be like in a a decade or two or three uh it's it's really gonna take on a a whole new life this is this is nothing folks (laughs) yeah i think you're our um you're absolutely correct that the capabilities with VR these days is better than we've ever had. And honestly, the several times that I've used VR, it's been, it, it's really trippy because the few times that I used VR, uh, it, you know, at, at a couple different game shops around town, basically, 
um, when I get out of it, I feel like I'm in a different reality. Like you get, you can get so ingrained into this whole world just because of the fact that it takes over your eyes and it's, it's amazing what we can see today. But I also think that you're definitely ahead of schedule on this too, because of the fact that it's a kind of a perpetual news story in the Apple ecosystem right now, which is when is Apple going to release their augmented reality headset? That's been more or less an open secret that they've been developing it over the course of the last several years. Uh, you know, Tim Cook specifically said that eyewear is a very interesting part of the technology spectrum that they're interested in and that they're developing. And one way you can see they're developing it is by every single year at their developer conference, pushing new and exciting ways that developers can engage into AR with their phones or with their tablets. And the flip side to that is you build it for the phone, you build it for the tablet, and as soon as they can get that level of processing inside something that can go inside your your glasses, that you don't really have to do so much work in order to actually deploy it. Basically saying Apple Apple says we have this new product, it's available, and developers flip a couple switches and all the work you've been doing over the course of the last five years can be readily available on this brand new platform that people should be interested in. And that, I think, is going to be the next step that really takes us to the next level. But obviously, it has to be a commercial success as well. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And I really want to go back to something you said about how it's it takes over your eyes. It's uh, You can underestimate how easily you can be fooled. Because some of the some of the stuff that you're doing in VR doesn't even necessarily have the best graphics. It's it's not like it's it's not like it's lifelike or or even very sharp or or you know there's some blurriness and pixelation to it. But you really underestimate how easily you can be fooled, even for a minute. Yeah. That you're in that world. So it's really impressive what some of these things can do, and that's that's why I say like. We're we're still limited by the technology. We still don't have the the kind of resolution that we need when something's that close to your face. And we we still have to integrate things like haptic feedback and yeah. and actually feeling things rather than just seeing it. Mm-hmm. But you can be fooled pretty easily. So oh, yeah. it, it's I I think um it sounds like the next iteration of PlayStation VR is going to integrate some type of glove oh, yeah. that will give you haptic feedback. So um, I, I would love to see what that does for this kind of um, technology. Imagine force feedback as well. So if there's something inside that glove that like, if it knows where, a rock is on the ground and you go try to pick that rock up and then you try to close your hand and obviously it's virtual. So you're not gonna be able to close your hand around it, but the glove actually stops you from being able to close your hand. And there's this hard limit where I'm holding the rock and I'm not holding the rock and it stops you from being able to close your hand. That'd be so cool. (laughs) (laughs) And it it doesn't even, it it obviously what's going through my mind is that it doesn't have to be like a electrical pulse that goes back to your brain. All it really has to do is, I mean, 
it, imagine like a steampunk version of this where there's like pistons and whatnot that you can't you can probably push the pistons close if you really want but it's hard and honestly if they i mean they're not going to yeah, just enough to kind of stop your hand from moving right naturally right where exactly. you're because when you're in the world you're going to interpret that differently right you're you're going to feel the resistance and stop yeah so yeah, I, I think things cool. like that are really going to be cool in that, the coming yeah. years. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And that should that, that'd be really fun if that is uh, a driving factor of the 2020s. And it's been a lot of fun just to see right now. So um, last thing to be that I want to be nostalgic about for the 2010s uh, in 2009. Apple was in a huge fight with Adobe about the future of Flash. Uh, Apple <laughs> did not allow their iPhone to support Flash at all. Any iOS... Which was a good move. Which was a good move, right. But it was a very contentious move at the time. Um, yes. Like, Android very much took the opposite stance, saying, no, 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 we'll support Flash. Don't you worry, Adobe. We got your back. And at Apple, um, still under the control of Steve Jobs at the time, and this was his... This was his rock that he was not going to let go. He basically said, iPhones, iOS platforms will not support Flash. Eventually, he'll basically say that the iPad won't support Flash either, and that they were going with the market alternative, which is HTML5. And this is amazing. I read through one of these articles. I happened to find an article that really, really recapped this whole situation between Apple and Adobe in 2009, because it was a hot topic in 2009. And so here's a, a quote from betanews.com. Flash provides a browser platform for plug-in free, rich internet applications, which could generate more cross-platform apps and services. Verbatim, what we talked about before with cloud services, HTML5 was a huge component in that. It's an easy platform to develop for. HTML5 is open source, and ultimately what we see as a result from Flash being dead and gone today is that we have an alternative to Apple's App Store, to Google's App Store, to Microsoft's App Store, to whatever. And you can just go on and use internet services without ever having to download a single app. So I don't really want to go... A- about an exact example right now, but let's just say let's Microsoft's OneDrive. Um, you can go on to Microsoft.com. You can download the app. You can inter- interact with the app all through their website, and it works pretty much exactly like their app does that you would download onto your iPad, onto your iPhone, whatever. And you can interact with. You can interact with that. So let's say you are referencing a Word document or an Excel document. You can just open up Excel and Word right in your browser without ever having to download a single app. Imagine doing that with Flash. Like it's it it's a heavy, dense uh, platform that kills battery basically, and it probably could have been updated to be better. But HTML5 was an open source platform that is not controlled. It wasn't controlled by Adobe, which is I'm not mm-hmm. even, every year I'm becoming less and less of a fan of Adobe, and it's open source. So, you know the uh, HTML body, basically the open source body. They say here's the new spec, implement it, and then 
goes. So 10 years later, Flash is dead and gone. And I think, I mean, there's no HTML6. There's, there will probably never be an HTML6. HTML5 Yeah, I'm sure it'll be an awesome. evolving standard, yeah. It, it is an evolving uh, standard. Beca- because I, yeah. HTML5 was designed from the beginning to allow components to be added without an entirely new version. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the new developments for web are going to be from the evolution of JavaScript as a language, right. which is the programming language uh, that's used for web development. It's it's the backbone of everything that's happening on the internet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, that's where a lot of the the evolution of web has been, and and is going to continue to be. Yeah, um, because. Uh, if you go back to the early days of the internet, if you wanted to update a page, you had to reload the whole page, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. by today's standards is just barbaric. Sometimes you still <laughs> but, have to do it because developers not always inter- implementing correctly. But yeah, yeah. it's yeah. So yeah. then the the real uh, turn was when uh, JavaScript uh, started to come on board and. Um, was able to change the page dynamically. So you could send out a request in the background, get new information, and then just update the page with it. Yeah. So uh, web develop that's what really set off Web 2.0 and allowed stuff for, um, um, man, I mean, like any anything we use today, basically. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, for it, it, it was a great move by Apple um, and one that, even at the time, I think I was saying, yeah, this is, you should do that. You yeah. should get rid of Flash. <laughs> Out of all things Apple was courageous about in the 2000s, that was the best one. Correct. I would agree with you. <laughs> okay. So, uh, fun times. Uh, I, I, have a, I have a couple obvious but not so notable things. Nothing really too crazy that I would want to turn into a whole item but do you have any anything else anything small to uh, anything small to talk about from the 2000s well i've got a little pop quiz for you okay that we can we can kind of finish up with let's finish that up then yeah um i'll i'll roll mine out here real quick yeah um so the imac in 2009 basically received its last major update it more or less hasn't been updated i mean it's been updated but the uh, design of it is pretty damn similar um they uh, updated the iMac in 2009 with an edge-to-edge glass display, um, a smaller chin, a uh, whole aluminum body. Um, in 2012, they made it thinner. And I don't really... Cons- I, that's definitely an update for sure. But if you look at it straight on, the two, the iMac from 2009 and the iMac from 2019, looking dead on without the screens on at all, they don't look any different. So... And even if you take into consideration, you know, one's thinner than the other, you're like, yeah, it's it's in the same family. It looks about the same. Whereas all previous iMacs looked pretty dang different um, leading up to that. So the iMac really hasn't received a major design refresh since 2009, and it's kind of due for one. Um, specifically, a bigger screen might be kind of cool. Um, as of 2009, the iPad had not even been announced yet. They were obviously working on it, but December 2009... Hadn't been announced yet. It was announced uh, in the spring of 2010. Uh, Steve Jobs was still in full control of the company in 2009. Um, Only passed away a couple years later, but still very much in control of the company. 
And Spotify had been published to the App Store in 2009 and was not available in the U.S. until, I think, a couple years later. But it was just published in 2009, and streaming services were pretty much hardly a thing at that time. So, And that is how we consume music today. So, fun things. Always an interesting thing to think about. So, yeah. So those last couple are... are uh, kind of what made me think of this idea for this little pop quiz. Great. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just say a couple things. Okay. And I'm wondering if you can tell me if they were around before 2010 or not. All right. So Kindle. I'm gonna say yes. Yes, it was around starting in 2007. Okay. And let's see, the Nintendo Wii. Yes, that was 2007. 2006. Yep, 2006. Cool. Um, 4G networks. <laughs> well, I, I sold. In the U.S. I sold 4G networks uh, while <laughs> I was in college, so no. Yeah, 2010, 2011. I remember that. So, I remember that one hardcore. <laughs> yep, I figured some of these would be easier than others. <laughs> and you, you mentioned your hatred or your your increasing dislike for Adobe. How about Adobe Creative Cloud? No, I remember being in school, sitting in a graphics class, using cre- the Creative Suite six, and there was an announcement about Creative Cloud and that you would no longer be able to buy Creative Cloud on a perpetual license, but it was going to be uh, a monthly fee. And I was like, that is BS. <laughs> I, remember, I remember the Such day. visceral. Yes, that was... I, uh, That's awesome. I can't, I can't say the year at this time, but I remember that day. I remember the feeling. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was 2011 when they began introducing Creative Cloud. All right. Um, Chromebook. No, just because as I was looking up my own, I saw that Chrome was still in beta on Mac in 2009. And I Mm -hmm. can't imagine Google would launch a product, a physical product, (laughs) before they took their product out of beta. Uh, We're we're not going to dig into that one. So (laughs) iMessage. (laughs) iMessage. iMessage. That's actually harder than it I might think. <laughs> no? Yeah, 2011. No way. Okay. That was a 50-50 <laughs> there. Okay. Yeah. Uh Minecraft. This one's hard. This one's real hard. Um No, it was after 2010 correct 2011 okay and it was bought by microsoft for two and a half billion dollars three years later actually a great investment on them because i bet it's worth more than that today yep okay uh snapchat no it's close 2011 2011 okay which is a lot longer than i thought yeah yeah um uber and lyft ride sharing both of them together huh I'm going to say no, because it really requires smartphones to be relevant. Right. And so this one's a little tricky, because Uber founded in 2009, 
Okay. But it didn't launch until 2011, which was in San Francisco. That so makes, it was very limited. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. 2011, essentially. Okay. Google Glass. No. When do you think that was introduced? I think that was introduced, I feel like we were in college. Uh, 2012? Uh, 13, but didn't really officially launch until 14. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, PlayStation Vita. PS Vita. That one's hard because I never used it at all. Um, before 2009. False. Okay. It didn't launch in North America until 2012. Uh, it was available in Japan in 2011. Jeez. That product basically was launched and died immediately. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it was hugely popular in Japan. They didn't really push it in North America, which is sad because it was really cool. Um, and I probably would have bought one once the PS4 came around. Yeah. Um, because I would have been able to play games remotely very early on instead of having to wait for it to come to Android. <laughs> true. Yeah, true. Um, let's see. Is there any other surprising ones here that we haven't covered mm-hmm. in our other topics? So Tesla had the Roadster. That was their first car. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did the when do you think the Tesla Model S came around? Was that pre two thousand ten or post two thousand ten? I think I just saw an article about that. I think it was two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. So yeah, okay. it was post two thousand ten. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think that covers the ones that I thought would be interesting, or or that would at least not be super super easy. <laughs> you're talking you're talking to a guy that for whatever reason serializes everything inside his head. And basically rem- tries to remember when something was released and whatnot. So <laughs> you had the right audience, that's for sure. I, l- right. I love this idea. Love this idea so much. Yep. Uh, fun quiz. Okay, one, one last quick one. Yes. Windows 7. 2009. Correct. Yep. I remember. It was introduced in 2009 to follow up Vista. <laughs> I used the beta for that. Be- I used the beta for both Vista and Windows 7. Yeah. That was. <laughs> What was wild about the beta for 7 is the fact that it was more stable than the beta, the stable version of Vista. And Yeah, isn't that wild? It's awesome. Like the, the <laughs> they still called them uh I think they called them public betas or something. They called them something else at the time. I can't remember exactly yeah, like what milestones they or something. Milestones. Like yes, the milestone yeah. one. I think I, I use those as well. Yeah, I remember that was released and my stepdad was like, "Yeah, it's, you know, it's a beta it's a before beta and like hey i'm gonna give it a shot and like nah it's better than vista (laughs) (laughs) then never look back so yeah anyway uh i thought that would give some that little pop quiz would give us some context of where things were introduced in the timeline of this last decade and Mm -hmm. like like we said at the beginning of the episode this stuff is I mean, reading up on it was incredibly enlightening. Isn't it? It really puts it into perspective. Like, you know, we haven't been using this stuff for that long, but it feels like forever in some cases. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing how uh, how far we've come. And reading back on 2009 was just incredible. So, Yeah, and, and um, I think the, the most interesting one to me, and that I I said it earlier, but I'll say it again, is I recommend... 
anyone go read the history of Netflix because <laughs> it was fascinating. Uh, their early history and then and then leading up uh, into the late 2000s and into the 2010s was was uh, really eye opening and and I just kept reading more <laughs> even after I found kind of what I was looking for for this episode's topic so very very cool awesome all right i think that'll do it for now um thank you again for listening if you'd like to share any comments feedback questions anything uh feel free to send us an email at active discourse at icloud.com and uh bo and i are actually about to log off and log back on because i think we're gonna have a second part for december of 2019 so um stay tuned for that and uh thank you again for listening talk to you soon see you in the next one bye